Mid, we begin to ex- examine the ministry of a pretty interesting person, the person of John the Baptist, a man that in Jesus' estimation, which of course is the right one, is the greatest man ever born of women. Which means John the Baptist, apart from Jesus, is the greatest person we could follow in the footsteps of. Now, when you look at our world and you consider the kind of people that are held up as great people in the world, they are nothing like John the Baptist. I mean, they are just diametrically opposed. Those considered great in our world are people who are worldly and the world loves them. They love their own. And Satan wants to make sure that the people that are considered great are worldly because he's trying to undo everything God is trying to do. My wife recently went uh, on a little field trip down to uh, Hollywood and, you know, the Walk of Fame with the stars. And they saw there the Kodak Theater and uh, the new theater where they're going to have the Academy Awards. And they already have bleachers set up in preparation for the Academy Awards. And of course, when that happens, just think of all those great people who show up. Rich people, famous people, people with money, people with influence, people with power. And they they roll out the red carpet down in the middle of the street and the the media uh, are just swarming everywhere. And photographers and people who have camped out sometimes for days and days in advance so they can stand there and scream at these great people. There's all this pomp and tuxedos and evening gowns. And all these people are great in the sight of the world. And then you contrast that with John the Baptist. And it's just, it's just nothing, nothing similar. No fame, no pomp, no red carpet. He's styled in very coarse clothing. Maybe John's hairdo matches a little bit. But he didn't get $20 million per sermon. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. A guy who was way down in the Jordan Rift in one of the hottest, most arid places in the world, down there preaching that men were snakes and vipers and they needed to repent and flee from the wrath of God to come. He condemned all those people who came to hear him. That is just amazing. And they still kept coming, which is even more amazing. It seems that they were just irresistibly drawn by God to come and see this religious cycle in the desert. Who would tell them that they needed to do road work on their hearts to remove uh, the rocks of sin and greed and lust and fill up the potholes of sin in preparation for the Messiah. And it might seem when you read the story of John and the gospels that this guy is kind of harsh. He's unloving. He's too forceful. He's too in your face. He's too condemning. And as we consider John, all of those scriptures, which Talk about love and kindness and gentleness and meekness don't seem to apply. Yet Jesus said 
He's the greatest man ever born of women. And it's good to stop and think about these things. How is it that Jesus said this is the preeminent godly guy? When his actions and everything we read about him in the scriptures surely do not seem to fit Hollywood's stereotypical holy man. Or even what most churches in the world would call a godly person. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And that reason is, is that we have adopted worldly definitions of love and kindness and compassion and godliness and substituted them for biblical ones. John isn't concerned about people's feelings. He isn't concerned about how popular he is. He doesn't care if he's meeting people's felt needs. He isn't trying to live up to false expectations of love and and compassion and kindness. He's no back-slapping, baby-hugging, sin-tolerating preacher. But he is the greatest man ever born of women. And you may be wondering what Jesus saw in John that he thought was so great. And if this is the case, you've probably adopted some worldly views of things that you need to purge from your mind and replace with biblical ones. John is an example for all of us to follow. He is not a maniac. He is not a fanatic. He doesn't have overly extreme views before God. He's about as good as you can get. The greatest friend you could have. The godliest example you could follow. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, but Jack, man, this guy was, man, he was, he was really, I mean, he seems pretty fanatic to me. Well, wait till we get into the gospel of Luke a little bit farther and we're going to find out that Jesus was more fanatic than John. And we're supposed to be like Jesus also. And all of us need to take a serious look at John's life and remind ourselves this is a godly person. This is somebody to follow. Now, we have learned that John came on the scene, and what did he do? He preached repentance. He preached that men were nothing more, the crowds were nothing more than the offsprings of snakes. You're thinking, man, that that seems almost mean to me. Well, it might be in some cases. But when you have people who are just so complacent in their religiosity, so dead in their orthodoxy and they come and they're just going to add another ritual to you know all their other rituals people like that need socked in the face and that's what john did you brutal vipers me who warned you to flee from the wrath to come talking to me yes you The axe is already laid at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what was great is, is it woke them up, didn't it? Because they said, 
what shall we do? What shall we do? He woke them up out of their spiritual deadness. He tells some that repentance needs to make them generous. He tells others that repentance should cause them to not be greedy and covetous and grabbing and clutching, but to be selfless and sacrificing. He tells others that repentance make people into honest businessmen. That repentance makes people so they don't try and gain things from others by force. He tells them that repentance causes people to be content with their wages. And that's what repentance is. It's not just some, oh, I repent and go back to living like you were. It's repent and change directions completely. And this is where we left off last time. So if you have your Bible in hand, look at Luke chapter 3, verse 15, and follow along as I read Luke chapter 3, verse 15 through 20. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod, the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, there are some really great truths in this section. But this morning, I want to point out to you to you four things God wants you to do. So that you too can be great like John the Baptist. The first is this. God wants you to be looking for Jesus' coming. Now most of the Jews didn't understand the Messiah's first coming. Most of them thought the Messiah would come. He'd be a military ruler. He would overthrow Rome. He would exalt Israel and everything would be hunky after that. And that's just what they thought. They, they didn't really understand that the first time he was going to come, he was going to be a suffering servant. But the one thing they did have right is this. They were in looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were longing for the Messiah to come, maybe for the wrong reasons, maybe in the wrong way, but they were looking for his coming and this is always good. Now you can you can look at a text like this and say, well, Jackal, of course they were looking for his, his coming. I mean, what about Jesus' birth and all those miracles we looked at? And what about John and, and his birth and all those miracles surrounding that? Well, you have to remember that was 30 years before this. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were long gone. They were old and advanced in years, and most of the people who witnessed those things were dead. And after 30 years, all of the, the excitement of God doing things in the lives of those two women and the birth of those two uh, baby boys, all, all of that mostly was faded away. And some people, though, had heard about this 
man down in the Jordan Rift, condemning people, preaching repentance, rebuking people. And he wasn't quoting the rabbis, which was extremely odd because everybody there quoted rabbi this and rabbi that and rabbi this. He was just telling them, thus saith the Lord. And the people were coming to him and they're wondering in their hearts, could this be the Christ? Is this Elijah? Is this the prophet? Who is this guy? The people could tell the difference in John's preaching. They were all, the text says, in a state of expectation, which means to anticipate or hope for or look forward to or expect. They're thinking something's going to happen. The text says, and all were wondering in their hearts about John. They weren't maybe saying it outwardly. They weren't saying, do you think this is the Christ? But they were all thinking it on the inside, all in their hearts. They're thinking, could this be the Christ? The word wondering is the Greek word dialogizomai, the word we get dialogue from. It means to think within yourself, to ponder, to dialogue within yourself, to reason. And that's what they were doing. They were reasoning. Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? And no one dared utter a word about it, but they thought about it. They thought, maybe this is the Messiah. And I think there's something to learn here. Are you waiting for the Messiah? Are you looking forward to the Messiah? I remember one time uh, talking to somebody. I said, you know, wouldn't it be so cool? You know, you're in the kitchen or whatever, and you're taking out the trash and, you know, you get it all tied up and you open the door and you go out to the trash can, you lift up the lid and right before you throw it in rapture. Wouldn't that be great? And this person looked at me with terror on their face. No. I said, no, I don't want him to come back now. Why not? If that is your response, something's wrong. You need to be ready to see Jesus because he is coming back. Now, you're either going to die and go be with him or he's going to come back and get you. One of the two is going to happen and you need to be ready to see your creator. And you need to ask yourself, are you awaiting eagerly their revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as first Corinthians one seven says it? Are you one of those who love his appearing as second Timothy four eight says? Are you in the words of Titus two thirteen looking for? The blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Does that describe you? Are you longing for it? I mean, are you one of those people after a hard week? You just, Lord, I wish you'd come back right now. Right before you have to crawl into the house and fix that leaky pipe. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Shouldn't all of us be like Simeon and all be kind of constantly waiting for the consolation of Israel? Sure, we should. Why? Because it gives you hope, doesn't it? It gives you endurance. It helps you live pure lives. Why? Because you know that any moment Jesus could come back and this might just be the final stretch. You might just be heading down the final stretch. And you know what? Even though you're going to be wasted at the end, Jesus is coming. And so that's what we learn from these people here. They at least were anticipating the coming of the Lord. The second thing we learn 
from this text is God wants you to be pointing people to Jesus. And of course, we see John doing this. John is pointing people to Jesus. And John had the ear of the masses, didn't he? I mean, they were all coming down. They seemed to be supernaturally drawn by God to come there and be rebuked. And all these masses are coming to him. And what does John do? Does he say, well, I just want you to know, I am an authentic prophet. You know, there hasn't been very many prophets lately, but I want you to know I'm one. And God speaks to me directly. So I got that going for me. I mean, is that what John was doing? Was he trying to attract attention to himself? Was he trying to please men and get glory and honor for himself? No, he was pointing all of the attention away from himself to what? To Jesus. And he does this in a couple ways. First, he places his baptism under the baptism of Christ. Look at verse 16. John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the word baptize means to immerse or or plunge into or submerse into. And John just says, you know what? I just want you to know. All I'm doing is dipping people into the muddy waters of the Jordan. But after me is coming one who is baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Secondly, he places himself under the person of Christ and says, but one is coming who is mightier than I. That word means of much greater strength and power. It talks about somebody who is a, who is a surpassing in, in, in strength. And he says, Somebody's coming after me who's way, way more powerful than I am. As a matter of fact, he is so far above and beyond me that I can't even, I can't even, I'm not even qualified. I'm not even adequate to just untie his shoelace. Now you need to understand at that time, pretty much the lowest thing you could do is touch someone's feet. I mean, you didn't do that. It was like cooties. It was unclean. You didn't touch people's feet. It was icky. And and only the lowest of the low slaves would wash people's feet. You'd, You'd buy people to do that task because it was so low. Of course, Jesus did it, didn't he? In the upper room, when all the disciples are sitting around going, yeah, I guess he's going to be the greatest. Jesus wraps a towel around himself, goes down and he grabs their feet. Something you never do. He goes to Peter, the leader, big fisherman Peter, starts undoing his sandal and Peter says, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing touching my feet? You, you, can't, you can't wash my feet. That is, that is below you. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash my wash your feet, you'll have no part in me in the kingdom of heaven. He goes, I'll take a whole bath. <laughs> the point was, is the, the disciples had no concept of this kind of humility. And this is exactly what we see in John, but even to a greater degree, because where the disciples 
weren't willing to wash each other's feet, John would be willing, but felt himself even inadequate to even untie the shoe lace, let alone wash the feet of Jesus. And he just places himself just totally in humility underneath the greatness of Jesus. And you know what? The world hates this. They hate this. I mean, you, we've probably all seen this, you know, maybe we've watched some incredible sports event or the Olympics and, you know, somebody does this incredible feat and breaks the world record. And, you know, all the media runs up there with their cameras and their microphones and go, you know, give a word for the mic. And they say, well, I, you know, I just want to give the glory to my Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. <laughs> Technical difficulty. The guy up there in the, in the control room is saying, get the cameras off that guy. He's a fanatic. Because why? Because he took all of that opportunity to say, well, you know, I've worked really, I've worked hard to achieve this. And, you know, I've trained for four years and, you know, I've been extremely disciplined and I've sacrificed all of it, you know, and that's why I'm so great. And yet when somebody says, you know, I just want to give all the glory to God. Let's pan on somebody else who's worldly. And God wants you, too, to be pointing people to Jesus. He wants you to humble yourself, to boast in your weaknesses, and to exalt Christ. Turn over to John chapter 3. We see more of this in John the Baptist. John 3, there's this little incident which kind of helps us see a little clearer what John was really like. Here this guy is, the greatest man ever born of women. He's got all these crowds coming to him. He's got this following guy. He starts getting disciples that are clinging to him. And they're pretty excited because he's a godly guy. He's forceful. He's not a wimp. He speaks the truth. And look at verse 25 of John 3. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now, just stop there for a second. They're going, you're losing your edge here. Jesus is starting to win. He's gaining. You know, you need to, you need to get fired up again. You know, you need to do something. You're losing popularity. The polls are down. And notice how he responds. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Stop there for a second. Think about that. Every athlete, every smart person, every great money maker, every great military leader, every great statesman or spokesman or musician or whatever is great because why? Because it was given to them from heaven. They wouldn't even exist without God. And John just says, So verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John says, you know, I'm just the friend and I'm happy that this is happening. And then his last line really shows his heart. He, he must increase. I, I just need to dwindle away and decrease. 
So the question is, when you look at your life, are you walking in humility and pointing people to Jesus? That's what we see John doing here in this text. But something happens. You know, let's say you get all psyched up. You get all humbled. You realize everything you have from God and you're just going to just point people to Jesus and just make it your goal. Let's say you're just going to do that. What's going to happen? That's our third point. God wants you to warn those who are prepared, who are not prepared to meet Jesus, that judgment is coming. You have to include that in your message. You can't just say, hey, here's Jesus. You also have to say, and if you don't follow him, judgment is coming. You can't just do one without the other. John, after humbling himself, after placing his work under Christ and his person under Christ, now at the end of verse 16 says, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, pretty much everyone agrees about the Holy Spirit part here. Because we know that when a person believes, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, right? Ephesians 4.30. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, which is the body of Christ. And we're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about spirit baptism. That is, when you become a believer, you are immersed, submersed, plunged into the body of Christ and have the spirit because of your association with the body of Christ. Romans 8, 9 says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So Romans 8, 9 tells us that if you don't have the spirit, you aren't Christ. So this tells us this. Every single believer has the spirit and it never leaves them. That's easy. So we're baptized by the spirit. But what about this fire part? Now, that gets a little bit more complicated. As a matter of fact, if you read commentaries, you'd encounter a lot of different views. What about this baptism by fire? Well, some take John's words to uh, to mean that that the fire part is a manifestation of the spirits coming into a person's life. Like in Acts 2, 3, you remember what happened there at the birth of the church? What would happen? The, the, the apostles were there. They were preaching the gospel and tongues fell on them like, or, or fire fell on them like tongues, right? And then they began to speak in what? Tongues. That is, they begin to speak in known languages, known languages that were unknown to themselves, but were the native languages of the people they were witnessing to. They weren't gibberish. They weren't just a static nonsense. It was a known language unknown to them. And people heard them preach in their own native tongue. That was the gift of tongues. Now, the big problem with this here is, even though there's some theological things I won't go into, is just experientially, if that was the case, all of us would be tongue speakers, right? And we aren't. So that's not a good view. Others would argue that baptism of fire refers to the cleansing believers receive when they repent and receive Jesus Christ as their personal savior. And this one here is uh, definitely true. Is it true that you get your sins forgiven? Sure. Um, when you become a Christian? Sure. That that happens at the moment? You're, yes. Uh, through him, we, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. 
So yeah, he has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and nailed them to the cross and took them out of the way. So yeah, we have that. But the question is, is that what this is referring to? They, in order to get that interpretation, they usually go to other places, other scriptures and say, see what these scriptures say. But the question is, is that what this scripture says? Now, let me just give you a little hermeneutics lesson. You're thinking hermeneutics. Um, yeah. How you study the Bible. Whenever you study the Bible, there are different principles you need to use. And if you get into studying the Bible and you read books on interpretation, they'd give you all these different kinds of interpretive principles like, you know, context and historical background and the priority of the original languages and the perspicuity of scripture and, you know, um, checking principle and, you know, all these different things. There's a whole bunch of principles. But when you study them all, this is what you learn is context is always king. That out of all the principles that we use to study the Bible, the one we put the most weight on is context, context, context. It is the king of all biblical principles, not cross-reference, but context. And what do we learn from the context? Look at verse seven that we were looking at a while back. Look at verse seven of Luke chapter three. Here, John asked the crowds, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, John here is implying two things, isn't he? He's implying one, that there is the possibility of fleeing and being saved from wrath and two, wrath is coming, right? Those are the two options he presents before them. John is placing before them these two options. They can either repent and be saved as verse three and verse eight indicate, or they can suffer God's wrath as verse seven, nine and 17 indicate. Now we know from any other text that the wrath of God is a judgment of fire that comes upon the ungodly for all eternity. Verse nine says it, doesn't it look there? Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that is not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What does fire represent here in the near preceding context? Judgment. And as we might expect, we find the very specific clue of what John is talking about in the immediate following context of verse 16, and that's in verse 17. Look there. Notice that right after he says, one is coming after me, You know, he is greater than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in verse 17, he's going to explain what he just said. And what does he say? He says his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is John's explanation of what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. He uses a word picture, which all the crowds then would have understood perfectly, and they would have just been crystal clear. Now, I want to ask you this. How many of you have a winnowing fork at home? None? How many of you in the last week have told your children, go outside and winnow? That's what I thought. Winnowing was the process of separating wheat, the grain from the stalks or the chaff. 
And what would happen is, is they would prepare a place, usually on the top of a hill, on a knoll, on a ridge, where the wind from the Mediterranean Ocean would come up, and they would they would create a very flat spot there with a curb around it, a round circle with a curb around it. And they would harvest their wheat, and of course, if you grow up here and you've never been out and seen wheat, um, it doesn't grow in wheat bread, okay? Uh, wheat bread comes from wheat. And uh, you, there, it's like tall grass, and it's got uh, these little clusters of grain with little fibers sticking out. And after it gets ripe, the heads bend over, and it really looks great. And in northern Idaho, there would be huge fields, and in the spring, it would look like a green sea because they they planted on rolling hills. So when the the wind would blow, you would see these rolling hills, and they'd all be fluctuating. It looked like the ocean. And then, of course, uh, later on in the fall, after it was all dried up and ready to be harvested, it would be you know amber waves of grain, and that's what you'd see. You'd see these this big flowing fields with these bent over heads. Well, they would take that, they would cut it, they would bring it up there in bundles, and they'd throw it in the middle of this circle. And then what they'd do is they'd have a pivot in the middle of the circle and then usually a, a beam or a bar that would go out and then they'd have an ox outside the circle pulling a sled that would roll over or drag over the grain and it would separate all the, the chaff from the wheat grain itself. And then they would get in there with their winnowing fork, which is kind of like a big uh, shovel or a, a tightly knit uh, pitchfork, and they would throw this crumbled up grain into the air and chaff and of course the wind would catch the chaff and blow it outside the circle and then the grain would fall down and they'd keep doing that and keep doing that until pretty soon the grain was pretty clean and there it was inside the circle the chaff was outside the circle then they'd get out their bic lighter and light it on fire and of course the chaff would be all dry and just poof, it would burn up. And now they'd have grain. They would gather that all up and put it into the barn, grind it into flour, make Twinkies out of it or whatever. And so the whole point is this, is that there is wheat and there is chaff. Wheat gets saved, chaff gets burnt. Pretty clear illustration, isn't it? And notice that it couldn't be cleansing fire because he calls it unquenchable fire. Cleansing fire, if you read in the scriptures and you find those places where we're cleansed, it's always temporary. This fire is unquenchable, which tells us surely it is the fires of judgment, which are never quenched. The, the Greek word is, is, get this, asbestos. That is the word. You wonder where we got that word from? We just borrowed it exactly from the Greek. And what is asbestos? It is the material that when you put it in fire, it doesn't burn. But if you have it removed from your house, it costs you a lot. And notice also in verse 17 that it also says Christ will thoroughly clear or purge or cleanse his threshing floor. That This is important to note that when Christ comes back, and he is going to baptize every single person on, in the world with one of two baptisms. They're either going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of fire. He's not going to miss anybody. He is going to thoroughly clear or purge or perfectly cleanse his threshing floor, which means every bit of chaff will be burnt. 
and every grain of wheat will be gathered and there will be no in between. There's not going to be anybody who go, Whoa, I'm glad I didn't go to hell. Oh, and I missed heaven. I just get to live in limbo, you know, on the outskirts of the new Jerusalem or whatever. There will be nobody like that. Now, what does this have to do with you? Well, obviously, every one of us here in this room are of one of these two categories. That's what it has to do with you. You're either wheat or chaff. You're wheat to be saved or you're chaff to be burnt. And you might say it this way. For every single person in this room and every single person who has ever lived and is living, they fall into these categories, don't they? You either have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ through faith in Jesus, or you will, or you won't, and you will be baptized with the fires of judgment. There is no middle ground. That is the message that you teach. You don't just say, this is Jesus, but you say, this is Jesus, and this is the consequence of not following, accepting, receiving Jesus. No one will escape. Now, if you are chaff, I would just want to encourage you that you need to repent. That's what John said, and that's what you need to do. If you are coming to church and you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, are you trying to scare me? Yes. You need to be scared if you're going to flee. Who flees from something they're not scared of? It's to flee from the wrath to come. I imagine that right now, if everybody in this room could now stand as observers at the end of the age of the great white throne judgment, when myriads of myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands are cast into the lake of fire, it would sober us up plenty. And we would come back with a very different attitude about the future and the present, wouldn't we? We would be very convinced. Well, we need to be very convinced from the word of God. We need to believe on faith that God is telling us the truth here and we need to change because of it. You know, you need to imagine telling your boss at lunch someday, you know, boss, if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? You know, you're talking to the neighbor. So how's it going? Fine. How about the Mets? Yeah. Have you repented? What? I said, have you repented? What are you talking about? Well, give them the gospel. If you don't repent, hell's coming. Judgment's coming. Think of what it would be like to stand up in a group of peers and tell them that they need to turn or burn. That is what John did. He is the greatest man born of women. The question is this. Do you love people enough to tell them the truth? Do you love people like John loved them? Like Jesus loved them? J.C. Ryle in one of my favorite sermons of his, a sermon entitled A Woman to Remember from a text we're coming up on in Luke about Lot's wife who looked back said this 
Quote, I feel constrained to speak freely to my readers on the subject of hell. Suffer me to use the opportunity which the end of Lot's wife affords. I believe the time has come when it is positively the duty, our duty to speak plainly about the reality and eternity of hell. A flood of false doctrine has lately broken in upon us. Now, this is in the 1800s, mind you. Men are beginning to tell us that God is too merciful to punish souls forever, that there is a love of God lower even than hell, and that all mankind, however wicked and ungodly some of them may be, will sooner or later be saved. We are invited to leave the old paths of apostolic Christianity. We are told that the views of our fathers about hell and the devil and punishment are obsolete and old-fashioned. We are to embrace what is called a kinder theology and treat hell as a pagan fable, as a bugabear to frighten children and fools. He goes on to say, I would gladly offer salvation of the gospel to the very chief of sinners. I will only say to the vilest and most profligate of mankind in his deathbed, repent and believe on Jesus and thou shalt be saved. But God forbid that I should ever keep back from mortal man that scripture reveals hell as well as heaven. And that the gospel teaches that there that men may be lost as well as saved. The watchman who keeps silent. When he sees fire is guilty of gross neglect. The doctor who's the doctor who tells us we are are getting well when we are dying is a false friend. And the minister who keeps back hell from his people in his sermons is neither faithful nor a charitable man. End quote. And that's the day we live, isn't it? And people don't even want to talk about hell. I mean, when you talk about hell, it's just it's like Greek myth. What? Like Grimm's fables. Even a day when the church has become so worldly that when a preacher cries out that there is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary, that you are fanatic, you've lost your head. Oh, you're one of those fundamentalists. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, commenting on a debate between Professor Ronald Nash of Southern Seminary and Matt Fitzgerald of Epiphany Church in Chicago, says, quote, Amazingly enough, Fitzgerald is bold to announce that liberal churches no longer believe in the threat of divine judgment and thus no longer look to be rescued by a divine savior. Even as evangelical Christians experience the radical transformation that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, quoting Fitzgerald, few people in the mainline church experience this sort of transformation. Well, of course, they are preaching the gospel. And then he goes on to say this. What about the threat of divine judgment? And then quoting Fitzgerald, as people who believe that humanity has the answer to its own problems, we are no we no longer believe we are doomed. Then Mueller says, he explains, as Fitzgerald parodies the evangelical understanding of the gospel, he accuses us of forcing a rescue on persons who are only standing in knee deep water. And that's in need of no rescue at all. Liberal churches see the situation otherwise, quoting Fitzgerald again. We think we're splashing around in the shallow end of some motel pool, but Christian songs, scripture, and stories treat us as if we're drowning in a storm-tossed sea. Because liberal Protestant listeners no longer subscribe to the notion that humanity is in grave danger. The message of salvation is rendered nonsensical. Jesus has become the answer to a question we are no longer asking, end quote. 
Pretty bad. It's your average church out there. This is the world that we live in. And this is why you need to tell people about the reality and certainty of hell. You, you wonder why John took the approach he did with all his dead Orthodox listeners? Because they needed socked in the face with the truth. Flee from the wrath of come, you brood of vipers. He had to shake them out of their complacency. Why? Because they were just so happy. And listen, we've got our own. Who needs a divine savior? There's no judgment. We're all fine. We're all getting along. We'll all get to heaven if there is one. Quoting Ryle again, Ryle reminds us, quote, the very same chapter which declares God so loved the world declares also that the wrath of God abides on sinners. John three sixteen and 36, the very same gospel which is launched into the earth with the blessing, blessed tidings, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, proclaims in the same breath, he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark six sixteen. He says, where is the charity of keeping back any portion of God's truth? He is the kindest friend who tells me the whole extent of my danger. Where is the use of hiding the future from the impenitent and the ungodly? Surely is like helping the devil if we do not tell them plainly that the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Who knows, but the wretched carelessness of many baptized persons arises from this, that they have never been told plainly of hell. Who can tell, but thousands might be converted if ministers would urge them more faithfully to flee from the wrath to come. Verily, I fear we are, many of us, guilty in this matter. There is a morbid tenderness among us, which is not the tenderness of Christ. We have spoken of mercy, but not judgment. We have preached many sermons about heaven, but few about hell. We have been carried away by the wretched fear of being thought low or vulgar or fanatical. We have forgotten that he who judges us is the Lord and that the man who teaches the same doctrine that Christ taught cannot be wrong. End quote. That is exactly right. The world may think you're weird. The world may think you're fanatical. The world may think you believe in fairy tales. You tell them the truth. Tell them about Jesus, point them to Jesus, and then tell them the other way too. Salvation this way, hell, fire, and damnation the other. And what if you do that though? I mean, well, well, let's just say right now we all got psyched up. We all got right with Ward, and we all started obeying him completely. And we thought, you know, we're going to go out and we're just going to do this. What can you expect when you tell people the loving thing? This is our fourth point. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. And God wants you to be willing to suffer for Jesus until he comes. Look at verse 18 and 19. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel. And notice that the gospel includes judgment. It's describing what he did, right? And the text says he did it with many exhortations. The good news is that judgment is coming and salvation is available in Jesus. And he reprimanded the people and he reprimanded Herod. He gives an example here. He reprimanded the most powerful man in the land. Isn't that incredible? He reprimanded Herod. And over and over again, the text says it's a participle. He kept on reprimanding him. And you may be wondering, who's Herod? Is this the Herod of when Jesus was little? Well, 
If you've ever studied the Herods, you know, the whole Herod family is a big mess. It's like a soap opera. William Hendrickson describes the mess about as succinctly as any could. Here is what he says and see if you can follow this. This is a test. Herodias, Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus, who was the son of Herod the Great by his wife, Mariamne the first. Herodias had married her half uncle, her father's half brother, Herod Philip, a private citizen, son of the Herod, but Herod the Great by Mariamne the second. Herod Philip must not be confused with his half half brother, Philip the Tetrarch. Now, Herod Antipas, another half brother on a visit to Herod Philip became infatuated with Herodias. The two illicit lovers agreed to separate from their present marriage partners, Herodias from Herod Philip, Herod Antipas from the daughter of Aretas, the king of the Nabataean Arabs, and to marry each other. This was done, and when John the Baptist heard about this, he rebuked Herod Antipas, and he did this repeatedly, end quote. Did you follow that? It was a mess. The point is, as John spoke the truth, and verse 20 says, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. In other words, the crowning sin of Herod was not his immorality and not his adultery and not his incense, but he locked up the greatest man ever born of women for telling him the truth. John was the only one who loved him enough to tell him the truth. And he locked him up in prison. He listened to his wife, Herodias, who was angry at John because he exposed her sin and they took off his head. And the point is this. Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. And notice he doesn't say all those who are godly. He says, you just need to have a desire in the world and you're going to get it to one degree or another. So when you leave here today, I ask you this. Are you looking for Jesus's coming? Are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you warning them of what will happen if they do not receive Jesus? And are you willing to suffer for Jesus for doing what is right? This is what it means to be great in the sight of God. And this is what God calls all of us to do. Let's do it. Father, we thank you for what we learned from John in this text. He is definitely a hard character to follow, not because his life is obscure or because we can't understand what we did, but because we love ourselves and we love our comfort and we fear men and have many sins that stand in our way. And Father, we just want to confess those sins to you and pray that you would change our hearts and give us a holy boldness, a zeal a love for you that surpasses the love of anything else that we might tell people what they need to hear in order to escape from the wrath to come. Father, help us to be faithful in doing that. Use us for your glory and honor and praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.